You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Turning to the Mystics, where we're turning to the book, The Cloud of Unknowing, by an anonymous author. And I'm here with Jim, and we're going to dialogue about his last session. Welcome, Jim. Yes, hi, hi, hi. Good. Good to be with you again. Yeah. You too, Jim. Um, in the last session, you focused on chapters 68 and 38 of The Cloud of Unknowing, and I'm wondering why you chose those chapters. I chose those chapters because as we go through each of these mystics, I'm trying to focus the point at which they help us discern the point at which our prayer is becoming mystical and uh, how to understand what that means and how to, to explore it and surrender to it and so on. So there are a number of places in the cloud where the author does that. Um, but I, these these two chapters in particular, I thought were particularly like profound or you know luminous, kind of poetically beautiful. So I chose them. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed the episode, and the poetics of it were were very clear and beautiful. So thank you. I wanted to start by reminding people that uh, through the cloud of unknowing, we're learning a method of prayer. And in this episode, you focused on the role of the word and how we might use the word uh, as a way to create a wholehearted presence towards God and uh, so that we might experience our union with God. So there's some clear actionable instructions in this book, but then there's also these very poetic descriptions of why we would enter into this type of prayer, how it might be helpful. And Jim, is that, is that because the this prayer isn't really guiding us to a particular outcome? So these poetics kind of put us in the, the realm of, um, I think you said in the episode about trying to help our soul resonate or sing um, with the idea of this union with God. Let's say that uh, to, for a comparison, that when Teresa of Avila speaks of the beginnings of the mystic on the fourth mansion, your heart, soul's being enlarged to divine proportions, uh, at, at which point this contemplative prayer starts to take on its mystical quality. There's no method for her mm-hmm. except to keep surrendering to that. You go deeper, deeper, and she offers guidance in the phases that it goes through. Same way with John of the Cross and a passage through a dark night, this, this deprivation of a sense of God's presence and where God's weaning us off these finite ways of experiencing God. So there's no method in John of the Cross. R- rather, is to cooperate and surrender and understand what's happening to us as we're entering into this state of more wordless, mystical union. And likewise with Merton, there's no method either. So it, with the cloud, there's there's no method actually. As a in other words, it isn't like there's some method, and if I perform this method, then this will happen. Rather, what it is is it's a way of concretizing uh, how to fulfill a desire. As we go through the common life, religion is a way to fill moral norms to to the special, which is devotional sincerity in which we are grateful to God for his gifts to us, our very existence, our faith, our love, and so on. And in that, in that uh, special way, there are these stirrings of love. And the stirrings of love tend to be very fleeting, but they kind of render the devotional sincerity more luminous or vibrant or more. And he says in these three ways, the, uh, the common, this, and the special, the, those two ways, begin and end on this earth. But also what begins is the singular way, which is the way of the desire to stabilize in the oneness fleetingly experienced in the stirring. Instead of just accepting it fleetingly to illumine devotional sincerity, you desire to abide there. 
That singularity, that singular way, he, he says it also ends here when we die past through the veil of death. But it opens out on the perfect way, which is God's own life and glory. But the thing is, that perfect way, which is God's own life given to us in glory, begins here, and it begins in this desire. It's really a foretaste of heaven. You're literally experiencing God accessing you as God and drawing you and transforming you into this knowledge born of love. And so uh, he says, well, how do we, how do we, instead of saying, just cooperate with it, do it like John of the Cross. He said, here's something you can do, a, a way to pray. But what gives its meaning is it's a way your heart is responding mm. to how to concretize itself in this strange desire, this mysterious desire. And that's, that's the guidance of the prayer. So it's, it's a method in that sense. Yeah. It's a method. It's almost it's like a, a, a poetic method that transcends reliance on any methods. Yeah. <laughs> because if it was a method, it would be more of you. See, in other words, if you would do something, that by the result of that, you would achieve it. Zen Master Dogen says about enlightenment, he says, it's entirely without human agency. That is, it's true you may never reach it unless you sincerely seek it with all your heart. But if you do realize it, it won't be the results of your effort because it's not the result of anything. It's just the boundaryless divinity giving itself. So it's a method in that sense. That's so clear. I haven't heard you say it that way, but that it's really a, a, a way to concretize a desire. And then I hear what you're saying too, without an attachment to outcome. It's really, a it, we're trying to uh, give to God what God gives to us, which is love. Yeah, exactly, this infinite love itself. And again, we use examples where, say, anyone who's a true poet or an artist or a musician, it's true they've learned the craft of that, they have to do the craft. But really the craft it concretizes an opening through which the gift flows. See? And so they can let, let like actively choose to let it happen and express itself through them. And so th their training is helpful, but mm -hmm. the fruit of the training transcends the, the training itself. You know, it's, it's, it's a granting of a gift that blesses us when we see it or when we hear it. You can tell you're in the presence of, of the gift. Jim, as part of the gift, you talk, talked about this inter sorry, interior self-knowledge. Is, is part of the gift that we might get in, in uh, committing to a prayer like this, deepening our interior self-knowledge? And what does that mean? I think at one level is it deepens the knowledge that unless, see, what will happen to me if I surrender to this? What will become of me? But what will become of me if I don't? So it's the self-knowledge of a kind of mysterious imperative of your heart. You can't explain it, but it's just true about you. That you'd be surrendered over to this self-donating love. Secondly, as it gets deeper, you realize that it's self-knowledge, and it's a mystery in which the mystery of yourself and the mystery of God's own self are one communal self. Mm. So when Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, the life is a life that is at once God's and our own. And that's the life that's offered to us, this divine life. And uh, it's the same way when we use the word consciousness. It, in, in a way, it's our consciousness. But in another way, it's God's own consciousness infusing itself and giving itself to us in and as our consciousness transformed in God. And so it's a transsubjective, unitive uh, sense of self and consciousness. The way you said that really moved me, that um, the interior self-knowledge is into the mystery of ourselves encased in the mystery of God. It's like that, that yeah. Oh, wow. So, so the knowledge isn't Head knowledge, that word like points, what, what will I learn about myself? But it's really opening up onto an experience of the mystery of uh, that we're here at all. And that's why we'll look at it later when chapter, when he talks about the word, how can this word do this? And that's what he means because it's the prayer of a person's whole being. You step forward in the totality of yourself and meet God uh, moving towards you in the totality of God. Yes, yeah, so I want to move move on to that and uh, and 
the chapter's focusing on the, the word to support us giving ourselves wholeheartedly. But I wanted to start with what you mentioned in that episode, this idea that the word helps us move from the physical to the spiritual. Yes, in this sense, in this sense, it helps us move, if by the physical, we mean it helps us move to what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and hear with our ears, our own, the interiority of our physical self in the physical world. There's the sunshine, there's the tree, there's the water, so on. But moving to the, to the spiritual is again this idea of a contemplative understanding of creation. That in creation, is a, it's a self-donating act of God in which the whole universe is God's body. The concreteness of the world is the concreteness of the presence of God expressed and realized as the gift and the miracle of the tree, the water, the bird, the breath, and so on. So it's not a spiritual that's dualistically beyond the material, but the, it's the spiritual of the intimately realized infinite depth of the material. See, it's God's manifested presence, as incarnate presence. Thank you. And that's reinforcing what you said in the episode, There's this idea that God is, is present but not bound physically. So then is it the same for us that we're, we're present but we might not be bound physically either? You know, the way I put it where I say in the reflection, where I ask this question, like, where do we stop? Yeah. Like, do we stop with our skin? You know, or do I stop at the walls of this room? So if the room was bigger, I'd go out more and meet the walls. <laughs> and uh, so it raises the questions that ultimately speaking, I never stop because I my very presence embodies, manifests, and opens out upon the boundaryless presence of God. And this is why then it permeates all of life. It permeates. And this is why then we could say, uh, and this is kind of the intuition behind the cloistered monastic life, and the, 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 or just the hidden life, that when we sit this way, in a way we don't understand, our inner fidelity to the surrender uh, touches the whole world in ways we don't understand. So when Merton has insomnia in the middle of the night, and he says suddenly the bed becomes an altar, and in a distant city somewhere someone is able to pray, it's boundaryless. And not only is it boundaryless, it, it travels beyond the frontiers of all created reality into God himself, into God herself. So that's that boundaryless state, intimately realized. Yeah, because it's not, like you just said, the skin, I can be, I can be conscious of the walls, even the horizon, like my consciousness can spread out in the physical realm, but that's just kind of a pointing to what you're describing, right? So I can see how I can be conscious of more and more and more and more, but this is like an interior consciousness of something that's at the heart of everything I see. Exactly. Let me use another example where we we experience another. This example again of a sitting in the presence of a sunset, and giving yourself over to the beauty of the sunset, giving itself over to you. So in that immediate sense, uh, there's, there's the boundaryless quality of the oneness of the beauty of the sunset. But that doesn't mean you can't stop. And um, notice that the sunset, you know the physics of the setting sun. You know, the earth is rotating and on its axis, and the sun is going over the horizon, and or you can look around and notice the, the physical characteristics of the thing you see in the setting sun, or get out your iPhone and take a picture of the clouds, you know. But then, as soon as you do that, you can drop back in again to the wonderment of this unit of mystery that utterly transcends what in relative consciousness is observed. And I think we go back, because the two are actually intermingled with each other. Mm-hmm. And this is true of human intimacy or parenting or um, watering of the, the house plants, that everything is, it is what it is physically. But with these interiorly awakened eyes of the heart, it's, it's God being poured out and given, the love of God concretized as the flowers, the setting sun, my breath. And we experience it first in the prayer, 
But as we keep practicing the prayer, it starts pervading all of life. There's an underlying habitual unit of consciousness, uh, which is a contemplative character transformation kind of transforms. In the episode, you use that example of deep love, how you can love someone like me (laughs) on the other side of the world, like my family in Australia, and that that connection is real. So it feels like it's something about that sense of connectivity and the mystery of the way we're connected and we can feel connected to others, to nature. Yeah. That's right. That's why I say you can, let's say someone's in a really broken marriage state and uh, you can be miles away from the person you're sleeping with. But the intimate beloved, the one who understands you and knows you and cares about you, can be on the other side of the world. And interiorly, you're closer to them and they're closer to you. So Mm -hmm. it's not limited to the physicality of closeness. And likewise, also mysterious when the beloved dies. Uh, Gabriel Marcel once says his mother died when he was very young. And the influence she had on him. And she said, he said, it's amazing how present a dead person can be. Mm. And so this is this inner communion of saints. This is intimately realized interconnectedness uh, on the interiority of God. Yeah. And Jim, you feel that with uh, Merton and John of the Cross and Teresa of Allah and even the author of The Cloud, I guess. It, very much so. So all these books here and all these mystics, and I'm sharing on these podcasts, the mystics have influenced me since I was in the monastery. And so I think when they speak, they speak with such clarity. You know, it's like a sharing. And so when we read them, like the author of The Cloud's Deathless Presence shines out and gives itself to us in the text. It's the same with the God, tunnel of understanding of the Gospels. It's the same way. You know, it's God's voice shining out through this contemplative understanding of every word of Scripture and every, everything that Jesus says. Yes. The author of The Cloud teaches us that uh, thought binds us to the physical but awareness of thought opens us opens up on the spiritual the way you've described it. And I did wonder, I want to talk a little bit more about thought, but I did wonder, is that also true for, say, you know, you have an emotional sensation in your body or, you know, a physical sensation? Can those sorts of things also uh, bind you to the physical? This is my sense of it. Let's start with thought first. He's saying that when... Where he says, understand your spiritual work is not limited to a particular place. That's how he starts. It's boundaryless. He says, but when your mind focuses on anything, on any specific thought, then in focusing on that thought, your mind is located there in that thought, just as assuredly as your body's located in the room. He said, but what if it, through this prayer, using the word as the anchor, Thoughts arise and fall, but grounded in this loving intention, we don't think about the thoughts that arise and fall and linger within us. And what we come to then is the awareness of thought arising, lingering and passing away, but without thinking about the thought that's arising. So awareness is itself a boundaryless state that bears witness that thinking doesn't have the final say in what, what knowledge is. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of a boundaryless awareness. And that boundaryless awareness then is the state that offers the least resistance to the granting of the oneness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it happen, but we're dislodged from specificity in thought. Into a, and, and examples of this, again, in human intimacy, or say, being quietly present in an art museum where you just sit quietly before a great work of art. You can feel the thought fall into the background, your thoughts about it, what you learned about it. And there's a kind of a communal state of the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the same with the, the voice of the poet, or the same with certain music. And so there, these are modalities which kind of invite a unit of contemplative awareness in which conceptual theoretical formulations and so on fall into the background. That still allows us secondarily to circle back around and have those thoughts, but it's to understand them within the context. You know, it's transconceptual knowing born of love. 
and so it's it's true in that it's true in that sense. So it it grounds us in one sense, and this awareness liberates us from being localized anywhere. But as we follow through it, and has, as it kind of rolls over and takes us to itself, then we start discovering by that very liberation, we see the presence of God welling up in and as every thought. See? We, and it's nothingness without God. You know, in and as every memory, and it's nothingness without God. And I think that's the big thing, really, I think, in a way. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. So the the poetry or the art is is a good example because in one way I might look quite bound to the to the picture. My eyes are focused on it, my my full attention's on it, but there's this switching over into a different kind of awareness, not a physically bound sense of awareness. But that's coming through my eyes, you know, like it's kind of like... That's the, right, yeah. exactly. That's what's that. It comes through the senses and the interior of itself, it transcends the sense. So the artist, say, contemplatively saw something, a flower. And what they did then is they shared with us what they saw. So when we sit there quietly and we look at the painting of the flower, the as we learn to see the painting of the flower, we're drawn to the generosity of the artist and to what the artist saw in seeing the flower. I'm wondering, like, this contemplative state, because there was a, a description where, like, the, the thinking mind tends to be in the foreground, the contemplative awareness in the background, and there's these moments when we switch and the contemplative is in the foreground and the... Is it just part of the human, um, uh, part of our human nature to have that contemplative always in the background, but we're just we're not connected to it? I don't think so. I, I uh, um, Owen Barfield, you know, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Barfield. There's different ways of understanding that in previous times, and still in indigenous cultures, that background awareness was the cultural habituated awareness of the oneness of the world as embodiments of the mystery of the Great Mother, the Earth, the presence of this. So when Carl Jung says, how can we claim the ears have taught us anything if we've not learned to listen to the secret that whispers in the brooks? He's bearing witness to this primordial thing. But we, we've become through different, through the Enlightenment period, the emphasis on reason, through the Industrial Revolution, through technology, and uh, into this uh, Newton, this mechanical, objective thing, in which this unity of conscious falls. We, we still know it in moments of love or solitude or silence or uh, art. It isn't that it's gone. But uh, Thomas Burton once said, he said, we live in a world today in which you simply learn not to listen, not to go crazy, because you're bombarded with things. And then we forget to know how to listen. So what we're trying to do then, the cloud of unknowing, is we're trying to be reinstated in a con mystical contemplative dimension of every moment of our life. And uh, to be that in the world and share that with people as, as it's given to us to do so. So al almost like the changing the habituated state from thought in the foreground to this contemplative awareness in the foreground, but not as a goal, going back to where we started this as a way of meeting God, like being open to God, that's like our desire is to be. Yes, exactly. I want to give two examples. So let's say, for example, in psychotherapy, if I'm seeing someone in psychotherapy and we're exploring a place in their life where they're suffering in their life. So as I, as I listen to them, I, I say I sit there and, and I ask myself, I don't know the answer. I, I can't just what an answer. But if I say to myself instead, let's see what's going on here. Uh, let me ask you some questions. And they're real questions. They're real questions. And the questions are such that in order to respond to me, you have to pause and listen to yourself. And when you listen to yourself, you're more present to yourself in my presence. And then the depth dimension opens up. I think that same thing is true of poetry or art, whatever. I think we all know what that's like, of the wisdom of that kind of um, uh, receptivity, 
like not launch, launching into it to get through it, but how to do the opposite, to step back and be attentive to what's going on in me as I listen to it and what's going on here. How It isn't just what would Jesus do, but how would Jesus understand the situation? What would Jesus' attitude be to, to the situation? And his attitude was always love. And what he saw in every situation was God uh, shining through every situation. And Jesus said, you have eyes to see and do not see. The root of our suffering is we don't see it. So the author of the cloud, all these mystics, are trying to help us come to this unit of seeing so we don't, so we don't get tangled up so much in conditioned states. And, you know. In the minutiae. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, minutia. And so the intensity of the minutia closes off access to a broader context that it would allow us to see it in greater clarity or in a more love-based way or a more, and uh, it's like stepping back in order to get closer to a deeper level. And the minutia can can be enormous. It's not, it's not just little things. It can be really big things going on in your life, but it's in comparison to the infinite mystery that we're built for. It's Exactly. And another thing, not to go off here in the depth dimensions of therapy. See, it is minutia compared to it. But to the internalized wounded self, the minutia is a tripwire yeah. for an unbearable, painful loss that happened. The minutia is an attempt to grab hold of something or have something so I don't feel so out of control. So part of it is learning to listen to the minutia and understand that what at some level might appear to be petty, the very fact the body responds the way it does we need to keep circling back to listen to it, understand it, and walk with it, and uh, let it kind of become the opening through which it can become the contemplative life. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. You talked about the, the word that we use during this contemplative prayer, as powerful because it's a prayer of our whole being. And then you referred to a scripture, Ephesians 3.18, um, and it's, it's so helpful to see how these mystics draw on scripture and, and Jesus' life. But the, the scripture says um, that we can comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. This idea of this prayer is grounded in Scripture. This, this, let me put it another way, too. This is true of all the mystics also. Is that when the mystics speak of the soul, what the, the soul refers to who we are created by God as persons in the image and likeness of God. So the interiority of ourself, our soul, is our God-given capacity to be awakened to, surrender to, and be one with God as our soul. And therefore, we're in an exiled state. We're exiled from the God-given divinity of our soul, you know, for different complex reasons. And this exiled state, the fall. And so what we, what we do then is um, find our way back to our soul, this oneness with God, by with the prayer of our whole being. And so the word embodies that. So then following scripture, then in this contemplative state, if the loftiest act I can perform is to give myself in love to God for God's sake, this is the loftiest thing. So then when I do that, uh, in that sustained state of that awareness, that's where I begin to realize that the heights of my soul embodied in that desire open out upon um, the, the, the vast heights of God, who in that moment is descending into me in and as that moment. And likewise, each direction is the same way. My depth, the deepest thing I can do is bury all my knowledge into this one little word. But the more I, I, I bear my whole self on this one little word, uh, the more my depth bottoms out 
into the bottomless abyss of God welling up. And the length, I could, if I could, I could cry out forever, if I could, but I can't, because I'm human. But if I could, the desire to cry out forever opens out upon God's eternity, which is the eternality of time and love. And breadth is we desire for others what we desire for ourselves. So the prayer embodies God's universal salvific will. So really it's divinization through love is what it is. And what happens here, I think in a way, is um, you, you can no longer find the place where you stop and God begins. You can no longer find the place where the world and everybody stops and you begin. And it's a very intimate realize of this unitive state of um, living our life in the interiority of God. And notice this is not for him. It doesn't say that there aren't visions and ecstasies. Those can happen. And John the Cross talks about those. Teresa talks about those. But the God doesn't go talk. He, he does have a chapter. I might mention it next time. Where he talks about these can be gifts. We can get attached to them. This isn't really the kind of ecstatic. It's more of an extremely subtle and empty-handed and vast uh, it's like uh, an obscure certainty, you know, it's unexplainably self-evident in some unexplainable way. And it's like what's become of you th through love. And that's, that's more the tone of it. It's so helpful to hear your contemplative reading of a scripture like that. Because the church has also gotten caught up in that rational mind and quite often presents scripture in a much more rational black and white way so to hear that mystery emerging from the from the scripture in that beautiful way it's just really helpful to hear that i think that i don't think that's offered very often yeah no if you listen to gregorian chant even though you don't know latin you can see the music of it does that but also ideally speaking uh when a homily uh is shared by a person of prayer is grounded in the homily itself moves, like you're moved by it. You know, you sense something unexplainable uh, without which uh, the world would be a dimmer place, you know. And it's like that, that's the quality of uh, transmission of mind, the Buddhists would say. It's, it's a, you know, it's like it's, it arcs over into the listener, like an event happens of a certain recognition of something that we're all waiting to hear. And Jim, the, the, the fruit or the, some of the changes we start to see might be that our inner peace, I think they, these are your words, of course, but that the inner peace, our inner peace is not dependent on anything but this love. So we're giving up our need for finite attainment. Let's say this is so normal in the human experience, is our inner peace is dependent on being able to maintain ourselves in conditions conducive to peace. So when all is well with our health and our relationships with our loved ones, our career, so the, 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 the self that is itself, the subjective awareness of these fluctuating conditions states we're at peace. When the conditions are no longer conditions conducive to peace, there's injustice, cruelty, hurt, abandonment, death, war, all this stuff with the racism, all this stuff, all this then all of a sudden, because the conditions are no longer conditions conducive to peace, we're not at peace. And so then we seek to be more peaceful again by restoring the conditions conducive to peace. How can I right this situation to be stable? And we should do that. We should do that. But what we're saying here is that uh, we, we honor that, we do, we do that. But it's a peace that isn't dependent on the outcome of the effort because it's not a peace that's dependent upon conditions conducive to peace. It's a peace that's not dependent on anything at all because it's the peace of God being given to us unexplainably in our life. Mm -hmm. And this is why you can experience this on your deathbed when you come to acceptance. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, sometimes amazing, look at John of the Cross, some of these Rumi, some of these people, this, this, this bliss sometimes broke through in times of great darkness. Yeah, And so it's a conditionless state of a love that utterly transcends and totally permeates the constantly fluctuating conditions. And it, it, doesn't make it, indif it doesn't make us indifferent to them like we're above it all. 
but it radicalizes our ability to be present to the conditions because our heart is tapped into a love that isn't dependent on the outcome. And we can draw upon it to be as present as we can to the people who are suffering or our own suffering and not so easily lose our balance. I think that's a big thing that actually finding this peace makes us more present. So, you know, if it's physical pain or uh, some kind of suffering, it's not like this is a magic trick. And if you can find this inner peace, the outer chaos disappears. It's it's the, a different stance you can take. Yes, something that helps me to say this, see this too, is to say, when you look back, there are certain moments, like the stirring, there are certain moments in any conditions at all, in the midst of nature, solitude, the beloved, the child, the poem, whatever. There's a certain moment in which you become unexplainably one with this. Like what a fool I am to worry so the way I sometimes do. It's just like, it's like wondrous. And then it, then it disappears as mysteriously as it came. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying then is that I, I believe that in, that in these moments, I, it's not as if something more is given, but a curtain opened and I intimately realized that every moment always is. And so what I'm trying to do then, the path forward, is not trying to attain anything because nothing's missing. That's the point. The awareness shows us like divinity in all directions. So how can I free myself from what hinders me from realizing this plenitude or generosity of love? And that's the path. Mm. How can I extricate myself from my tendency to uh, absolutize the relative and relativize the absolute? See, how can I lean into it and uh, be transformed in it? And if that's something you long for, then the cloud is offer, offering us this way to concretize that longing and perhaps be more open to, to that habituated state. That's right. And notice also, it's really a letter of spiritual direction. He's talking to someone. But other passages, he's, he clearly realizes he's talking to all of us who might find it helpful. Mm-hmm. And notice is how beautiful his language is. It's very concrete, but it's so um, luminous, what kind of poetic... You know, just the sheer beauty of it bears witness to the truth of it. You know, I mean, it like bodies it forth. And and that's why the longer we, time we spend with it, it gets into us. You know what I mean? Uh, I think it was Douglas Thur- Howard Thurman once said, I saw him on a video, and uh, he, he was talking about what he owed to his grandmother. I think it was once a slave, actually. And um, he said how he owes everything to her, he says. And then he says... Uh, uh, he said, the thing about spirituality is you can't get it out of books by trying. What you do is you hang around with somebody who has a bad case of it, and you start coming down <laughs> with it like the flu. <laughs> you, mean, like, all, all the, you, you run into somebody that just manifests it, like their presence manifests it. And then when you sit in their presence, it starts happening to you. Yes. And I think that's how the lineage works. And sometimes we can be with the person physically. It's fortunate when we can do that, being a contemplative thing with a uh, like awakened teacher. But the deathless presence of the teacher is present in the text, just like the death of presence of Jesus is present in everything Jesus says. So the more time we spend time in company, these people, and just surrender to the beauty of it, we realize it's, it's, it's happening to us. It's starting to arc over you know, and become the way we're starting to see things. So that's what it's all about, really, in a way. Yes. Well, I found it even beautiful when you were talking about, uh, you know, the the struggle around this and how how the author says, never mind, you know, don't mind. Um, And uh, so I just, I did want to focus a little bit on that struggle. Um, So the way you described it is to say that there's parts of us that can't get this and won't ever get this while we're here in the finite plane and uh in the cloud they talk about those parts in being in a kind of darkness I just wanted to talk about the ways that might manifest you talked about frustration but I wonder if there's other ways like not wanting waking up not wanting to practice kind of being being avoidant 
or feeling doubtful, is this really doing anything, is this worth it? For me too, other parts that need therapy more than the practice that I have to go and take care of. Um, are they ways that we kind of find ourselves in, in what the book refers to as darkness? I want to speak of it psychologically first and spiritually. Let's say we're on a path where we realize that there's a certain tendency that has caused suffering to ourselves and others. Narcissistic entitlement, resentment, emotional withholding, uh, quick to anger, whatever. In realizing the suffering that it's caused, we seek to be free from it. And in seeking to be free from it, we realize the depth to which it has a hold on us. Like St. Paul, the thorn in the flesh. And so we keep trying by endlessly circling back around to be there for and with the part of us that needs to be loved the most, this broken part. To, to spend time with it, to understand it, to be with it, to love it. We do the inner work. So what happens is that the breakthrough doesn't come in that you, you broke through. That is, you solved the puzzle, the buzzer went off and you made it. But in the very midst of the sincerity of endlessly being there for yourself in a merciful way, the, the, the light starts unexpectedly shining through the vulnerability of your sincerity. That makes sense in a way. Yes. That's, that's the unexpected nearness of it. So we're saying that in a way that's kind of a sacrament. What happens here? Because the great dilemma is this. God grants us a taste of a oneness with which having tasted it, our life without it will be forever incomplete. But by our own power, we're powerless to attain it. That's the gift of the dilemma. So what we do is we sit at the edge of our powerlessness to attain it, because it's infinite and it's finite. And what happens in a willingness to sit this way, what happens is that love burns away our reliance on our own effort. And as our own effort, see, my, my, my strength is perfected in weakness, he tells Paul. You leave the thorn there, he says. My, my strength is perfected in weakness. Because in your weakness, deeply accepted, my infinite love for you shines bright. Like this. And I think that's another paradoxical intimacy in all of this. Yes. So just practically, Jim, would that be to say... If I wake up and I feel like I really don't want to do my practice, like I, I accept my fragility and my, you know, desire to comfort myself or, or, you know, not be, yeah, put in a state that doesn't feel good. And I can, I can accept myself fully that way and be compassionate towards myself. And then I may do the practice, I may not do the practice. Exactly. See, I think we're trying to learn to trust ourselves. So if I don't want to do the practice, but don't do the practice. Yeah. Don't do the practice. But don't beat myself up for not doing no, the don't, practice. No, don't beat yourself. <laughs> because it isn't as if you don't want to do the practice because deep down you're really that bad person you feared you really are. <laughs> <laughs> you tried so hard to prove it's not true. Oh, my God, it's true. It's not that you don't want to do the practice. Don't do the practice because your heart is beating. You're breathing in, you're breathing out. The sun's moving across the sky. But if it, but it, you'll, what you'll tend to notice, though, and maybe it's because it isn't for you right now, is to be more in reflection or loving people or, you know, you, you, you follow the currents wherever it goes. But then you realize, though, if it goes very long, oh, the grace is you realize you miss it. That is, you miss what you're not in the mood of doing. So then you could sit and ask yourself, but what is it in me that's not in the mood? to do what will, in my fidelity to it, bring me to the liberation that I seek. And then we get back to experiential self-knowledge. Is it the fear of boundarylessness? Is it uh, how I'm traumatically bonded to pretending that I'm less of what I'm called to be? And then, and then I go going for a week, you would just quietly sit with it, like asking God to help you. Is it the frustration of how busy my thoughts are and how hard it feels to do the practice? <laughs> exactly. If, if it went smoother, I'd be more willing. But, uh, but you know, but I'm, my mind's all over the place. And so God says, of course it is. Look, what do you think? It's all over the place. But, I, but I'm steadfast and I'm infinitely one with you in your wandering ways. And that's what you're trying to discover. 
Because I think another way of looking at these practices is that um, what happens is set up in such a way you can't do it. Like it sounds great. You know, you got your coffee <laughs> in the cloud, you light a candle and you bow and you get going. You know, t- about eight minutes into it, you know, this is a rough row. But that's the point. See, so you sit with it and see if you feel called to do it. And what is the gentle light that shines through these variations? Because notice what you're doing. You catch yourself in the act of perpetuating violence on the part of you that needs to be loved the most. You're buying into the idolatry of attainment. Instead, you're being asked to surrender yourself over to this love that is unexplainably attaining itself and giving itself to you in your inabilities. That's the, you know, I mean, it's things like that, I think. Uh. Yeah, as I reflect on my experience, uh, you know, I started a practice and then when Will's mother was dying and then, you know, knowing Will was going to come and live with us, I said to God, I know I have to commit to this practice to be the person I want to be in this situation. And from then on, I just committed to it. Yeah. It was to concretize my desire to be a loving, helpful presence to will. Yeah. That's why I say that in a very deep down way, in an open-ended, freewheeling way, everything's right on schedule. So maybe for a long time, you just can't do it. Then something happens, a death, a birth, and all of a sudden what eluded you before. That's why the author of The Cloud says, uh, for all the grandeur of this, he said, yet when you're called to do it, it's the simplest thing there is. Mm. Because you're not going against the stream. You're kind of all of a sudden, and here you were being prepared for it all along and all those things you had to go through. Because it's yes. a continuum, really, yeah. of God's oneness in life, I think. Yeah. Well, to end on an encouraging note, you said that uh, God will always hear and help someone making this prayer. What does that experience feel like? Yes. Let's say that we're immersed in a long-standing inability to be stabilized in this. We long for it, we read it, and just... And let's say even more in our daily life, uh, in, our, in our intentions to be loving and good and clear-minded. A lot of slippage, a lot of slippage all over the place. And I start to realize then that if, if this is all up to me, this is not looking good. No, I mean, I, I, I'm really just lost in my fragmentation. But if I then am moved to cry out like this, in this desire to give myself in love to this infinite love, woundedness and all. See, what is it, what is the love that, that is the gift of not attributing authority to the woundedness? But rather it gives itself to the love is unexplainably giving the totality of itself to us as precious in our woundedness. You know, it's like the, the hymn Amazing Grace. Here's a person, a slave trader, bringing slaves over. Amazing Grace, I once was lost, was now I found, was blind, but once I see. And uh, sometimes it's precisely because things got so broken and so dark. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness grasp it not. The darkness can't grasp the light, but in the darkness, it can be illumined by it coming to look for us. And this often happens in AA, like deep recovery work. It often happens in trauma recovery work. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes you drown in the pain and some people don't resolve this, this side of death. It's resolved in eternity. But for many people, it's precisely because it got so lost they once said about Thomas Merton, he was a gentle person because God was so gentle with him. That one lost sheep, you know, you were, the love went looking for you just when you were lost and touched your heart in the lost place. And you put your trust in that. Yeah. And that's the union. So we can have confidence that God is always listening and helping, but uh, we might not always know it on this side of our exactly experience in in the concrete details of our life but in that part of our soul that we're trying to connect with it knows and this is why you know thomas merton used to say is there a christian in the house 
you've read the Gospels lately. So in Jesus, I see, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. See? The abyss-like mercy uh, dissolves it all. Mm. Someone once said, compared to that mercy, it's like a drop of water on a fiery furnace. You know, just everything's consumed in the nothingness of it all. Is this mercy. And we place our hope in that. So that doesn't mean that we don't continue trying to overcome the difficult, the moral imperative we need to. But rather, it's been transformed because like the thorn in the flesh, God says, leave it there as your teacher. Your peace isn't dependent on that. And by the way, your inability to get past the hurtful thing creates the empathy of your oneness with how precious everybody is in their brokenness. And uh, there's ministerial uh, implications of this on how we relate to people. Well, what I'm hearing today is that we're, each of us is a unique version of this portal of yes. union and love and, and uh, connection through our soul. And we're all completely loved by God. Exactly. That's it. We well said and true besides. <laughs> and no I've sensible person would deny it. Yes. I've got but, a good teacher. Boy, yes. <laughs> there we go. Cloud of anointing. We never go wrong. This is why these teachers are so, what a gift to be touched by these teachings and the yes. beauty of it, the truth of it. It's pretty amazing, actually. I was referring to you, Jim. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll end there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.